0: Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. They were sitting around a campfire and it wasn't quite dark enough yet for the ghost stories to start. So they spent the time remembering, sharing memories, sharing shared memories of this group. And they thought back to the good old days, back when they were kids and they could go outside and run around and play. Uh, They remember all the fun kids, all the nicknames they had, all the fun games they would play. They'd go outside, and and their lives paralleled the lives of professional sports. So if it was football season, they were out playing football. If it was basketball, they were out playing basketball. If it was was baseball, they were out playing baseball. And they loved to go out and play in the neighborhood. And if the sports got old or they didn't have enough kids, they would get together and they'd play hide-and-go-seek. Or they'd play cops and robbers, or they'd play cowboys and Indians, or whatever. But they remember those days when the streets were safe and the kids were out playing. And then their nostalgia turned to, boy, those were the good old days. Nowadays, you can't let your kids outside. Nowadays, kids don't want to go outside. Kids want to sit and play Xbox. The kids want to wanna be on their iPads, their iPhones, their their e-whatevers, Facebook. They started to bemoan the culture, the changes. They started reflecting on the leadership that they had used to have in the past. The leaders that, you know, were the, the good, powerful, strong, excellent leaders that got us through difficult times as a nation, as a world. And they started to reflect on these people who were just regal statesmen and women they started to reflect on how grand things used to be how wonderful and powerful and proud they were they started to reflect on on the on what it was like to watch the who's who of the famous people how grand they used to dress and how beautiful they were. And it, it wasn't about, you know, showing a lot of skin back then. It was it was about it was about grace and beauty. And my how things have changed. And they we're sitting around the campfire and they're remembering all these things but the interesting thing is that when we sit around campfires remembering when we practice what's called nostalgia we fairly we we regularly forget the battle times we don't remember the bad things that have happened to us we don't remember the bad that has occurred and this group was guilty of that too and they were sitting around. They were remembering the good old times. They were comparing them to today. But they forgot. They forgot what had gotten in, into the world, into their lives that got them to where they were today. Lamentations is where we've been studying the last few weeks. And this before and after technique, this before and after thing that we do when we sit around and we tell stories of remember the time, remember how great, remember how nice, oh, it used to be so fantastic. When we sit around and say these things, sometimes the reason we're doing that is because things aren't as good today as they used to be. And the poet in Lamentations chapter four, he uses this technique. He uses this technique of saying, this is how it used to be But this is how it is, or at least it was, during the 18-month to two-year siege of Jerusalem. Now, to catch you up if you haven't been following along, in Lamentations, it tells us the response. It is a response that God helped the people craft to the catastrophe of the fall, of the burning, of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was completely and utterly destroyed in 587 BC by the Babylonians. They came and they conquered and they killed and maimed and raped and destroyed and pillaged Jerusalem. And then they drug the people into exile 650 miles away by car. Of course, they didn't have cars. And they burnt down the temple of God They burnt down the palace of David. They burnt down all of the prominent buildings. Just think if Washington, D.C. was was bombed and destroyed by our greatest enemies. And that's what had happened in Jerusalem. In fact, in this passage, in this chapter, we're going to see that people, the people around Judah, their neighbors, were shocked that Jerusalem would fall. It was the city of God. And when we read this passage, again, the poet is going back to his his, uh, style. If you remember chapter 1 and 2, he's been using the Hebrew alphabet to begin each phrase. So he starts out with, Aleph, and then Bet, and then Gimel, and Dalit, and he uses the Hebrew alphabet, and he's going through the entire alphabet to structure his poem, and there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so there's 22 verses in chapter 1 in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he doubles it, so he uses A for three sentences together, B for three sentences together, C for three sentences together, so then you get 66 verses. Who says, I can't do math? All the accountants. Put your hands down. And then chapter four, he goes back to the way he did chapter one and two. He only has 22 verses in this passage, and he structured it again. A, B, C, D. Running through. Remembering how it used to be. It starts again with the Hebrew cry, the dirge, the funeral dirge. Echa. How awful. How terrible. He starts out by saying, How terrible. The gold has lost its luster. The fine gold became dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. Their bodies more ruddy than rubies. Their appearance like lapis lazuli. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. The next one's ugly. The next one, you're like, that's in the Bible? The next one is horrific. It's terrible. But it was a curse that God placed upon the people in Deuteronomy 28 when he said, are you going to do and follow the rules that I've put out before you? Are you going to covenant with me? And And it wasn't that God is a killjoy and he just has a bunch of rules and he wants people to follow them. It's not that he's bored in heaven and he's thinking, huh, how can I mess with people? I got nothing better to do with my time. The reason he gave the covenant is because he wanted to bless Israel. Now, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, what were some of these blessings? Well, one of the blessings was this. He wanted to give the people a year off every seventh year. Haven't heard that in church, have you? God wanted the people to have an entire year off every seven years, at least the farmers. He wanted them to have a a year off every seventh year. (laughs) Well, what would they do? I mean, they'd sit around and eat the harvest from the sixth year. That's what they'd sit around and do. He wanted the fields to lay fallow the seventh year. He wanted to bless them so much that they could take a year off. Not only that, he wanted to bless them so much that they could take one day off every week if you don't remember, this is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the most neglected and most forgotten about commandment, at least here in America. This is one of his Ten Commandments. Take a day off every week. Take it off. I mean, he was talking to, by the way, people who were agricultural people. Cows to milk and feed. Pigs to feed. Chickens to take care of. Fields to tend to. How, how can they take a day off? I mean, there's no way you can take a day off on the farm. But he says, if you do any work on that day, that the penalty is so severe, you should be cut off from my people. Today in Jerusalem, not many people take this seriously. And by the way, I mean, we don't take this very seriously. We take the don't murder, don't kill, don't steal, "steal," don't covet your wife, don't commit adultery. We take those pretty seriously. We even get a little bent out of shape when somebody cusses and uses God's name in vain, even though the word we use is God, and that's not the word that was prohibited. The word that was prohibited was Yahweh. So we get all bent out of shape about that. But rarely do you hear somebody say, boy, we got to get better about taking days off. We're just not. We're not following God. Why would God want to bless them that way by taking a day off? Because he had brought them out of Egypt where they were slaves. And slaves don't get days off. And slaves have to work hard when they hear the snap of the whip. And slaves have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, and that was their master. And he wants to say, "I'm a new master. I'm giving you days off." Well, that's just not the American way. I know. It's the Hebrew way. It's the Israelite way. You see, God wanted to bless them so much that they'd get time off. Other blessings. He was going to scare all the poisonous snakes away from their land. That is a huge blessing to people like me who are scared of poisonous snakes. He wanted to scare all the wild animals away from their land so that you could travel from Jerusalem to Galilee without fear of being mauled by a tiger or a lion or a bear. He wanted to bless the people. He was wanting to give them things, give them land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a land that provided everything that they needed, a land that took care of them. He wanted to give them what the scriptures call an inheritance, land that would never leave the family, would never be sold, would always be in the families. He wanted to tie them to the land, the inheritance for their future generations, for wealth, for security, for prosperity for these people. And all they had to do, all they had to do was follow his commands. It's like he put this enormous carrot out in front of them and said, do these things and I'll do this for you. In fact, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He's like, oftentimes in church, we guilt people and we scare people and we try to tell them, ah, do the, you need to quit doing that or else, or else you'll burn or terrible things or God hates you or blah, blah, blah. And he said, God never seems to work that way. God is always dangling carrots out in front of us. He's dangling crowns and land and taking care of us and looking out for us and rescue and removing us from oppression and slavery and time off and rest. Remember what Jesus said. If you take up my yoke, He says, I will give you rest. He wants to give you abundant life, rest, peace, shalom, everything in life going well. And these people, all they had to do was say, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to follow. They did. They said, yes, we're going to do this. And then the next portion of Scripture is telling us how they didn't do this. Now, the vast majority of the Hebrews didn't follow through. They didn't keep the commands, the laws. God eventually brought judgment. He destroyed Jerusalem. Now, this next passage that we read, it's horrifying. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children. who became their food when my people were destroyed. The wrath of God was so great against his people for not following him that it brought about cannibalism in Jerusalem. The siege was so great. vast majority of people died in a siege from starvation. And women were driven to do the unthinkable. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. You see, it's very clear to the poet why this has happened. This is not just bad luck that happened to Jerusalem. Oh, bummer. Jerusalem has fallen. This is clearly, according to the poet, who is probably the prophet Jeremiah, who has been proclaiming to the people for years prior to this, and not just him, Isaiah 100 years before, and not just him, but prophets that God has sent to the people saying, follow me. Follow the covenant. You've agreed to the covenant. He actually compares the covenant over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament to marriage. You know when you got married? Those of you who are married... You made a covenant, a commitment to somebody. How do I know this? Because I'm a pastor and I help the people through those words. In sickness and in health. In joy and in sorrow. Forsaking all others. When you get married, you make a covenant with someone. And you are saying, I'm going to live up to this. And I'm expecting you to live up to your end of the deal. Sadly though. Lots of times, people don't live up to the covenant. And there are consequences when we don't live up to the covenant. When we don't live up to the commitment we've made with another person. And guess what? When you don't live up to the commitment you've made to Yahweh, to God, there's consequences. And he says that over and over again. Return to me, you faithless people, and I will bless you. If they would return he would fulfill his covenant to them. But they refuse. And for hundreds of years, he sent prophets to warn them. And Jeremiah is clear. The fall of Jerusalem is God's wrath upon his own people. Well, thank God we're Christians and we're on the other side of the cross. And that's true. If you have followed Jesus Christ, then you are not subject to God's wrath. If you follow Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven of sin. If you follow Christ, you have access to God the Father. You can go into his presence. In Hebrews it says you can boldly approach God and make known your your concerns. Make known what's on your heart. But this only comes, this access to God, this right relationship with God, only comes through faith in Christ. It doesn't come by being good. It doesn't come by being at the right place at the right time. It doesn't come by trying things. If it did, then how good would good enough be? How good would you need to be? Do you have to be Billy Graham good? Mother Teresa good? Steve Weinkoop good? I think we can all reach that one. But Mother Teresa good? Boy, that's a tough one. How good is good enough? If that's the way we get to God, if that's the way we get His attention, if that's the way we get into His presence, if that's the way we get His blessing in our life, is to be good, to do the right things, to think the right things, to say the right things, to be the right things, we would all fail miserably. I offered the last few weeks to follow you around with a GoPro. And nobody has come up after church and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take you up on that. For some reason, we all are nervous about somebody knowing every single thing about us. For some reason. Something in us says hide. Something in us says Shame. Something in us says fraud. Something in us says fake. Something in us says phony. That's why we don't want this GoPro challenge. That's why we don't want to be followed around by somebody with a video camera. Because we know there would come a moment like that police officer whose body cam caught him, his own body cam caught him stealing money at a crime scene. Because we would forget eventually that we're being followed by the GoPro. We would forget. Eventually it would catch us. It would nab us. We would say something or do something. And we would be like, oh, can you edit that out? Can you get that out? Can you remove that? There's something in us that says, we are not right Even though there's books written, I'm okay, you're okay. Even though there's all sorts of programs in the school to help kids with self-esteem and self-confidence and help them feel better about themselves, all humans have this hiding notion that something's wrong with me. I'm not who I was meant to be. I'm not the way I was supposed to be. And here in Lamentations... The people are recognizing Israel wasn't what it was supposed to be. Israel, the very people chosen by God to be his special treasured possession, have failed. Have failed miserably. And the consequences of their failure has been the death of many of their friends and loved ones. The consequence of their failure has been the destruction of the city. The consequence of their failure has been... The end of the Davidic kingdom that the king has been drugged into exile. The consequence of their failure is super horribly severe. Have you ever experienced consequence of failure in your life? Have you ever experienced it where it just was given full vent? You see. All of us have probably experienced some failure that was just so monumental, so earth-shattering, so life-changing. And What do we do when we experience that? Oh, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to let that happen again. I resolve that I will never, right? And we work hard and we challenge ourselves and we set goals and we try to change. But it only looks, works for a while. You see, we need God's grace like Jerusalem needed God's grace. And what we learn from this passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what we learn from the poet is that he's saying God was faithful to follow through on his his threats. (laughs) And if he was faithful enough to follow through on his threats, then he's faithful enough to follow through on his promises. You ever been around a kid who's who's threatened regularly, but it's never followed through? Grandparents, they make threats all the time, but they never follow through on them. Right? Come on, there's some grandparents here. Too close to home? I gotcha. I'll just pick up my dad. My dad makes threats. I make threats, and I don't follow through on them. That's called bad parenting. Number one, making threats. its not the best parenting technique. Number two, if you're going to make them, at least follow through on them, because then the kids start realizing, oh, dad doesn't mean it. I can do whatever I want. There's no consequences. Quit shaking your head, Bailey. There's no consequences for my behavior. And the thing that it raises in the kid's mind is, if my dad's not faithful enough, if my mom's not faithful enough to take what she thinks she is or he is taking seriously, seriously then can they be trusted? Will they ever come through for me? And it creates trust issues. And the people of Israel realize we treated God horribly. And He was patient. And He sent warnings. And He tried to work with us. But eventually, eventually the hammer fell, eventually there were consequences. And this is actually what fuels the little bit of hope that the poet has in this poem, is that God was faithful enough to follow through with his threats, and he will be faithful enough to follow through with his promises. You see, the prophets, when they came, they came announcing not just, hey, if you Don't turn away from your sin. Bad things are going to happen. But they also predicted that the people would not turn away and that bad things would happen. But every single prophet had this notion of a remnant, that there would be a remnant that God would save, that there would be a true king that would return and save. And every single prophet picks up on these themes. That there's hope that God will bring a true king. You see, this king being deposed, being removed from Jerusalem, being sent into exile, the flip side is that God is going to reverse this. This actually is what opened up the door for the true king to have access to the throne. The true heir of David, the true son David, Of David, the true son of God, the Messiah, the true anointed one of God. This event, this exile is what opened up the opportunity for Christ. See, one of the things that is true of you and I is that we still live in exile. Some days you feel it more than others. Some days everything's great, like, you know, there's like, a don't know, an 80 degree day in February in Colorado. That's a great day. No wind, beautiful. You think, man, I'm going to get out and ride my bike. I'm going to go play some golf. I'm going to go do some fun stuff. I'm going to, and then there's other days. There's other days where you get bad news from friends, from families, from doctors, from accountants. There's days you, you find out bad stuff, It's horrible things that occur. And it's those days that you start to realize, I am in exile. Things with this world aren't what they're supposed to be. Politicians like to use this to get elected. The sense of exile, the sense that not everything in the world is what it's supposed to be. I read an article this past week and it said 81% 81 of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And eighty-one percent, the reason given by people like Franklin Graham and uh, uh, Falwell—I can't remember his first name—the um, reason given by those men has been mainly because of the Supreme Court nominee of nomination of Supreme Court justices and abortion. And it's interesting because there's been some research put into this, and they talk to people who are white evangelicals, and they have found that it looks like the reason 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump was not those two issues. The issues were primarily the economy and national security. Wanting to be safe and wanting to be taken care of were the two main issues that researchers are uncovering that people voted for Trump. Now, I don't care who you voted for. I don't know what you did. I don't care. But if you are motivated by your own security, and if you're motivated by your own well-being, then you're in a club called humans. And you're in a club that includes all of the people in Jerusalem. And the interesting thing that they did was when the Babylonians came against them, they sent out heralds, and they sent out negotiators to go and find allies. And their long ancient ally was... Egypt, and Egypt didn't show. They didn't have allies that showed up to help them on this day. And in fact, God told them, don't trust in man. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in other nations. Don't trust in nations that are less holy and less righteous than you. Trust in Yahweh. The people didn't. And it's so easy, isn't it, for all of us to go, boneheads. How come they can't figure that out? Do we really trust the Lord? I mean, do we really trust God when the odds are against us, when the, the gates are surrounded? We are like them, we look for alliances. We look for things out of our own wisdom, out of our own strength. We look for other gods. We look for pain relief. We look for quick fixes. We look for someone or something that will make us feel better, make things right. We look for things besides dealing with the issue. And the issue at the core of all of us is this. We need Christ. We need Christ. We need a Savior. We need somebody who will fix us in our brokenness. We need somebody who will come in and and will transform us from the inside out. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that this does not get done here. That this process of being changed from the inside out, that it does not culminate on earth that there will still be stuff in your life that you're like, seriously? I thought I had that licked. I thought I had that wiped out. I thought I had that dealt with. And you still constantly have to wait on the Lord. See, on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus Christ came once, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, went to be with God the Father, and now he is preparing a place for us and he will return and take us to be where he is. That is the blessed hope. The blessed hope isn't that you would live your best life now. The blessed hope is that you would live your best life later. After Jesus returns, after the rightful king takes ownership of this place, he's the only one who's going to make it safe. For you here. He's the only one who is going to make it prosperous for you here. But it's not always going to be now. The Apostle Paul lived this out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he boasted in his sufferings... <laughs> We should have a boast off about suffering. Let's you wanna let's just have a testimony Sunday, and we'll all just come up here. Oh, oh you think it's bad? You know, it's kind of like that old Monte Python uh, clip. You know, you are so lucky. I can't do British accent, or else I'd never shut up if I could do a British accent. <laughs> I talk all the time. <laughs> Some of you are like that's that's not different. They said you're so lucky. We used to live all sixteen of us in a shoebox on the side of a road. And we go to school uphill both ways in snow up to our necks. The next guy, ah, you're so lucky. That is a posh life. We used to live at the bottom of a pond under a rock. And our father, he would beat us just for fun. And then he'd ask us to go out. I mean, they just go on and on and on and on and on and on about how, how lucky other people are. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, he kind of does this. He starts to boast. And some of his boastings are these things. And remember, this is a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the guy that wrote the vast majority of the New Testament. Remember, this is a guy who was caught up into the third heaven. Not exactly sure what that means, but he was in God's presence in some significant way. He had seen the risen Christ, something I haven't experienced. He had experienced hands-on stuff with Jesus that none of us have experienced. And his experience of following Jesus, in fact, what Jesus told him, told the guy who was actually, not, not Paul, but told the guy who was told to go talk to Paul about Christ, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 starts to list his sufferings. He says, four times I was... I was beaten within an inch of my life. I spent a day and a night out at sea. I've been stoned to death. (laughs) You can read about that in Acts. They stoned him and they walked away. They thought he was dead and he gets up and dusts himself off and moves on. On and on and on, Paul goes about his sufferings. And we think we're going to get out of this place without... Wounds, injuries, heartache, sorrow, pain. You see, that's for the life to come. One of the great promises of God is that He will wipe away every tear. Do you know how you get tears? Why is that such a good promise? Because we know that this life is full of pain and suffering and sorrow and tears. And we look forward to a day when the king will wipe those away. We look forward to a day that it is better there than it is here. We look forward to a day when everything is put to rights. And that is the hope that Lamentations has. And by the way, the writer of Lamentations did not see that day in this world. He died long before Israel returned to Jerusalem. He never saw Christ, not in this life. But there came a day where the poet died, perhaps in Israel, maybe in Babylon, maybe of old age, maybe of violence. But the poet of Lamentations died. And when he walked to the presence of Christ. When he walked into the presence of Yahweh, he knew it had been all worth it. He knew that even the wrath that he had seen, mothers eating their own kids, he understood that it was worth following Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Would would you stake your life on this? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help each of us. Help each of us to know what it means to wait upon you, to trust you. To know that there are times where you discipline your kids. To know that we shouldn't be blind to the sin in our lives and take it seriously. And I pray that you would help each of us to resolve to follow you. Holy Spirit, that you would make it so. Because we don't have the will or the strength to do it. We need you to help us. And all of us have sorrows and pain and suffering and turmoil in our lives. And we look forward to a day where you will put the world to right. And you will wipe those tears from our eyes. And we trust with all of the saints that have gone before us, with the entire church that has always put their hope in Christ, we trust that following Christ is best. He knows what's right. And he will come again. Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. May you follow Christ no matter. Amen. Good